You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Thomas Tsai, assistant professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management and an affiliated faculty member of the Harvard Global Health Institute. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Friday, July 10th. So a few opening remarks um, from our work at the uh, school as well as the Global Health Institute. Um, This morning, the New York Times uh, released a dashboard of state uh, testing thresholds, which was a collaborative effort uh, based off of uh, our prior work um, through the Harvard Global Health Institute. So I think that really highlights a few key points I wanted to open with today is that a lot of our metrics are unfortunately heading the wrong direction. Um, Despite an increasing number of tests, our test positive rate continues to increase, um, which means that the number of cases uh, appear to also be increasing as well. So now we're uh, seeing over uh, about 60,000 cases um, a a day. Our test positive rate nationally is um, uh, continues to rise and is about a 9% uh, test positive rate again. So instead of heading the right direction, which is uh, closer towards the less than 3%, uh, we're heading back to where things were in March and April with their test positive rates continuing to rise. The uh, second um, uh, point uh, we wanted to uh, make today is also um, uh, to uh, realize that as a lot of the uh, states, especially in our uh, in the South, um, are uh, seeing rising cases, rising hospitalizations, uh, and rising deaths. I think this is also an opportunity um, to uh, uh, go back to sort of where the country was in March and April, where there was a collective action um, to focus on uh, how do we help out uh, you know, New York City, uh, where uh, they were seeing a huge burden of, uh, of disease in March uh, and April. So uh, I think in some ways, this is also highlights that, um, you know, we need to uh, kind of, instead of looking at uh, the South and, 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 and some of these states and saying they open too soon is how do we actually um, not just, you know, take the energy we had focused in New York, but now focused on Los Angeles, focused on Phoenix, focused on Houston, focused on Miami, and think about, uh, you know, getting volunteers down to these uh, areas, getting PPE uh, down to those areas as well. And then the last point I wanted uh, to close the opening comments on is um, there's been uh, a lot of discussion in the media and in um, conversations around the country around, um, despite the rising number of cases, the hospitalization rates seem to be flat nationally and the mortality rates seem to be flat. Um, But if we dive a little bit deeper uh, into the data, what we see is for uh, the states as part of our dashboard, which are in the red zone, uh, which is uh, greater than 25,000, uh, 25 new cases per 100,000. These red states are actually seeing hospitalization rates that have doubled over the last two weeks, um, and mortality rates are uh, increased by 35% um, from just two weeks ago. So now the narrative is no longer a national narrative, but one that is state by state. Um, and some states are doing really well, uh, but some states uh, have rising hospitalizations uh, and rising deaths. So it's important um, to now uh, really Uh, understand the data uh, in terms of its local context. So I'll I'll stop there and happy to take any uh, questions about uh, the work that we've been doing at the Global Health Institute. Thank you, Dr. Tsai. Okay, looks like our first question. Yeah, Um, hello, Dr. Thomas. Uh, Thanks for doing this. Um, My uh, first question is uh, just need to know, uh, to ask about, do we need to test flu patients for COVID-19? And the most common question nowadays is, is COVID-19 airborne? 
Thank you for uh, those questions. Um, I think we need to be testing a lot more broadly for COVID-19. And a lot of hospitals around the country have protocols in place where every um, patient that's admitted is now uh, being tested. We used to use the word screening and uh, during the uh, uh, early days of the pandemic, that meant screening for symptoms. But now really the main screening test is an actual uh, nasal swab um, or a viral uh, test directly. So we can actually see if patients are coming in uh, who may be asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic carriers for COVID. That's incredibly important for the hospitals because they have to know what the risk of exposure to other patients and uh, to healthcare workers are, and also where to um, uh, place patients in special isolation wards or as part of the uh, general uh, inpatient uh, floor. So that's an incredibly important um, uh, screening uh, modality that a lot of hospitals around the country are now implementing to protect both the healthcare workers as well as the patients themselves. The uh, second question around uh, you know, whether the uh, virus is airborne or not. Um, you know, there's been a lot of um, discussion the last uh, uh, several days and weeks, and the World Health Organization has uh, uh, changed its definition of, um, of the COVID-19 uh, and the coronavirus being able to be uh, spread as an airborne disease. Um, in some ways, it's a little matter of semantics, whether the transmission is droplet uh, versus uh, airborne. I think the fundamental takeaway is that we all know that um, the transmission of, of COVID-19 can happen through an airborne means. Um, so from coughing, from sneezing, and, um, and there's uh, emerging data that uh, uh, indoor environments where there's high frequency, high duration of contact and close proximity with other individuals, um, these are all risk factors um, uh, for the transmission and uh, transmission from surfaces uh, with medical and public health terms, which means uh, fomites, um, uh, is less of a, a driver for uh, transmission. Um, that really argues, um, and I think this may be a theme for today's uh, 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 conference, is that we're back to where we were in March in lots of ways um, about uh, re- um, uh, invigorating the public health measures that work. Um, that include wearing masks to minimize the risk of any uh, airborne uh, uh, transmission, whether via droplets or even smaller sized particles, uh, as well as good uh, physical distancing and hand hygiene. Um, can I have one more question, please? Um, uh, what are the infection risks for a large assessment? Sorry. Um, do you mind clarifying that a little bit? What do you mean by a uh, large assessment? Yeah, uh, you, you know, th these times there are uh, many calls regarding uh, mass tests. Uh, a lot of people are feeling like uh, a little bit concerned. Um, do you, uh, there's uh, infection risks for a large assessment. Um, I'm not, I'm not quite sure I understand the question. Do you mean just the, uh, what's the general risk to um, the general population? Um, yeah, uh, the existence of a large number of people in certain place to make, um, to take COVID-19 tests. Ah, so um, what I what I think um, you're, you're getting at is, um, a, you know, so the, the way to kind of put all the, the data together is that there's not a single intervention uh, or a single test uh, that is um, 
you know, the still silver bullet or the or the miracle cure. You know, we're still in the same basket of interventions that we have now that we did earlier in the pandemic. Um, so that means each of these interventions can lower the risk of transmission uh, by a significant degree. And taken together, that's can we that's how we can actually reduce the most amount of risk uh, for transmission. So uh, in the community, that means avoiding large gatherings. Um, that means uh, taking precautions by uh, wearing masks universally. Um, you know, uh, physical distancing of over six feet, minimizing um, any. Um, um, sort of close contact. And also, I think testing can play uh, an important role. Um, you know, what's unfortunate is our conversation has now uh, gone back to the way it was in March, where we were letting the scarcity in the supply chain drive uh, some of our recommendations. Uh, now, you know, that's why in early March, uh, some public health uh, experts were recommending to not wear masks in the community, not because they didn't work, but because we had to preserve them for high-risk populations or frontline healthcare workers. Um, uh, now that the production has improved for masks, um, there is a near universal consensus among uh, public health researchers that wearing masks uh, uh, can help. Um, testing plays a role in that, but similarly, now we're also seeing, um, again, like we uh, you know, are repeating ourselves from a few uh, weeks or months ago, is now they're actually testing shortages once again in uh, specific uh, jurisdictions, and then the time it takes for the test results to come back is starting to get longer and longer, with some commercial labs taking over a week to get the results back to individuals. So it's not enough to, uh, you know, testing is a means to an end. The end is to beat the pandemic. Um, it's important to test, but testing alone uh, may not be enough in areas where there is a high burden of uh, COVID-19, which is why in the uh, Harvard Global Health Institute uh, dashboard, our suppression metrics of COVID-19, we've color-coded the risk level for those uh, areas where the uh, new cases are greater than 25 per 100,000. That may mean uh, coupling a testing strategy with contact tracing, uh, you know, with the potential need for uh, further shutdowns. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Next question. Hi, thanks so much for doing this. Um, I have two uh, unrelated questions. Um, one is uh, there's new results out today. I don't know if you're familiar with them, suggesting that remdesivir is uh, is very useful. I'm just wondering, kind of what what your thoughts are on that on that drug in particular. Um, I, thanks, Karen. I haven't um, actually seen the um, the new results about remdesivir today, um, but I think from the uh, prior um, uh, studies that have come out, uh, remdesivir uh, is useful um, in uh, reducing the duration of hospitalizations um, and the um, duration of uh, of symptoms. So I, you know. All of these uh, new uh, therapeutic um, trials that have come out, um, you know, none of this is a, a silver bullet that's going to make the coronavirus go away. They're all about, again, risk reduction in the clinical side means uh, reducing the, the duration of symptoms, re reducing the duration of a hospitalization. Um, and for the steroid trials, reducing the, the, the risk for mortality in, uh, in severe cases. Um, but it, it still means uh, really good supportive care for patients in the hospital uh, who require that level of care uh, because of their COVID-19. Um, and then unrelated, do you have any, uh, any advice? You, you've, you've been through a surge in Boston in your own hospital. Do you have any advice for folks in the South and the West who are kind of just heading into that now? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I can speak as an individual living in Boston, uh, but also as a, uh, a physician. I'm, I'm a surgeon at Brigham Women's Hospital, and I have an active uh, clinical and surgical uh, practice. Um, on the first part is there is an incredible degree of individual responsibility. I think um, there is a sense that uh, in some places that, that the virus is going to run its course and um, and there's very little that individuals can do. Um, but uh, what we've learned in um, in Boston and in a lot of other states have been through an earlier peak of the pandemic is that you know, good public health action is built on the backs of thousands of individual uh, efforts and actions. And that means that everybody has a role to play themselves. When you break a chain of transmission, you're not just helping a theoretical person halfway around the country, you're reducing the risk of, of uh, infection of your you know, friends, family, colleagues, and, and other loved ones. So, um, you know, the advice to the individuals in uh, the states that are seeing this is that, um, you know, that they're, they're, you can beat the pandemic. You know, it happened in New York, it happened in Boston, it happened in Detroit, um, but it means that everybody uh, needs to take this seriously um, and that everybody has a role to, uh, to play um, in, in, in beating the pandemic. And that means following the, the guidelines, uh, wearing masks um, uh, and uh, getting uh, tested um, and also following good social distancing. Um, one thing I'll um, uh, mention is that you know, we had looked at some data on uh, cellular mobility in Florida. So in the early days in March, um, what was fascinating was um, that uh, individuals in Florida started staying at home about two weeks even before uh, uh, county level orders or state level orders uh, that mandated the mandated shutdown. So, you know, the, the, the public understand how serious the, 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 the disease is. And I think it's um, important to um, for individuals to, uh, to understand the the gravity of the pandemic in their uh, for their own families, um, and um, and for, and not just wait for the guidelines um, officially to come down, but in some ways a lot of this is just about following common sense. As a clinician, um, it's important to to understand for a lot of these hospitals that these capacity shortages are very very real, and we're seeing that play out uh, in hospitals in Houston, in Arizona, in Florida, for example. Um, and the whole goal of uh, these crisis standards of care, which are triage mechanisms to ration um, scarce ICU beds uh, and ventilators, um, the whole point is to not get to a point where we need to use them. That's why hospitals have to plan, um, have a plan A, B, and C about how to create excess capacity. And that may mean in some hospitals, uh, uh, once again, decreasing or postponing elective admissions in order to uh, free up resources to, to deal with the, uh, the, the you know, surging pandemic in, in their local areas. Thanks so much. Really helpful. Of course. Next question. Hi, thank you so much for hosting this. Um, I similarly have two questions. Um, the first is, can we dig a little bit further into why the United States is not meeting its testing targets? Specifically, what are the problems with the supply chain right now? And how do our issues with that compare to other countries? Um, I'll let you answer that and then I have a, a similar other question. Right. Um, so on the first question about the supply chain, um, the issue is that it's uh, 
now a very local um, and, and the, the bottlenecks have become very local. You know, early on, we were focusing on a shortage of uh, uh, the nasopharyngeal uh, swabs, um, but now as there's been an um, increased number of tests from and assays from different manufacturers, um, they all used uh, different reagents, uh, different cartridges. So the uh, supply chain in some ways with the um, uh, availability of different assays has actually become more complex uh, with uh, specific reagents for uh, you know uh, different uh, you know machines so I think that's been one challenges is now it's not just uh, a national shortage you have very specific shortages in different areas so in some ways it's a distribution uh, challenge um, uh, for the supply chain and that really argues as to why we need a, a coordinated strategy. Um, and if there's a lack of that on the federal level, this is where uh, regional compacts or collaboratives acro across um, states can really help um, um, uh, to, to address these uh, shortages. I, again, I, I feel like it's a little bit of like Groundhog Day, where we're kind of repeating ourselves every you know every every few weeks or every few months. We're we're back to. Uh, the situation uh, early on where you know states are trying to um, outbid each other for supplies now it's uh, local hospital systems are competing against each other for supplies of reagents and and, and for tests um, the second um, part of that is that's why we have to measure um, you know key performance indicators uh, process measures so pre-covid i worked on health policy and healthcare quality and there's a donabedian framework where we talk about structure process and outcomes We've been talking a lot about structural measures of quality, such as the number of tests, the number of contact tracers, and outcomes like the number of positive cases, the positive rate, hospitalizations. Um, but we really haven't focused on, as a community, uh, how to connect the dots between you know, having enough tests of, to allow for a process that's actually going to improve the outcomes. So this is the stage where we really need to focus on uh, key performance indicators and a lot of the work that we've been doing through a collaborative effort, uh, not just at HSPH, but involving um, colleagues at the Harvard Safra Center and the uh, coalition of uh, research groups, think tanks and foundations is to uh, coalesce and converge around a set of key metrics to measure some of these processes around testing. Um, because if you're not measuring why your uh, turnaround time is is so low is so long uh, over a week, you're not going to be able to improve those processes. So two of these metrics that are really important to measure include the uh, turnaround time, um, so the amount of time it takes to complete a, uh, a full contact trace, as well as the turnaround time for a test result to come back. You know, if it takes over a week for the result to come back, mathematically it becomes challenging for testing and contact tracing alone to be adequate. And that's why you have to couple that with the other non-pharmacologic interventions. The second metric is the proportion of tests um, positives that are coming from either uh, targeted surveillance or from contact tracing, as opposed to just symptomatic individuals. You know, now in a lot of states, because of the shortages in, in testing again, um, uh, they're limiting the indications for testing again to symptomatic individuals. Now we've moved backwards to just diagnosing COVID cases among symptomatic individuals in the hospitals. What we really need to be doing is getting the tests out of the hospitals, out of the clinics, and into the communities where the, where the individuals are uh, in order to test uh, adequately um, and using that information to inform the, uh, the suite of non-pharmacologic interventions. Uh, just to follow up, you've actually answered um, my second question, but to follow up on the uh, portion of my first question, why are we, why is, is the United States as a whole having these issues with testing supplies when other countries have been able to 
to do this. So is it an issue of a lack of a national coordinated strategy? It, yes. The, I mean, the short answer is yes. Um, you know, and what's frustrating is um, we seem to be stuck at this complacency that, you know, the 650,000 tests a day right now is okay. Um, and we think about, you know, that was the, the discussion back in March when we were doing 25,000 tests. And, um, you know, we've been, uh, you know, creating research and these national testing targets in order to help move the needle um, uh, along the way. Initially, 500,000 tests per day, you know, then about a million tests per day. Um, and we may need to do more if we are to truly suppress the, the, the pandemic. And that testing target is going to fluctuate with the underlying uh, burden of COVID-19 cases. But that's why we need a, a coordinated strategy on the federal level. And if that doesn't exist, um, that's where uh, regional collaboratives um, uh, across state governors um, uh, can be uh, incredibly helpful. Well, we're part of a Massachusetts um, TTSI task force, uh, a test trace support isolation task force. And uh, we're you know, diving deeply uh, uh, through a public private partnership to understand some of these local supply chain issues. Um, and, uh, but again, it's, it's, you know, it's, it is very local, you know, the challenges um, that, uh, you, you know, one hospital system like uh, Mass General Brigham is facing is different than what UMass is facing because they're running different platforms. Um, the Broad Institute, for example, has been able to uh, fill in the void uh, and increasing its testing capacity. So I think that's a model um, that can be replicated um, is a, a public private, you know, a testing task force. Um, that's not just about strategic policy goals, but actually involves um, um, industry, um, um, academics, and, and policymakers all in one task force to really hone in on, uh, on fixing the supply chain. The model for that in, in Massachusetts has been um, the uh, MERT, which was the Massachusetts uh, Emergency Task Force that was created uh, to help um, manufacturers and industry repurpose their supply production lines towards making uh, you know, PPE. So there's an example of how we can do this. Now the challenge is to take, take the lessons from that manufacturing process for PPEs and that sort of collective effort and apply that to testing. Thank you. Next question. Hi, thanks for taking my question. Um, I feel like a few months ago when it came to testing, a lot of the talk was about the importance of rapid testing when it comes to getting back to normal, for lack of a better word. Um, can you talk a little bit about where we are when it comes to rapid testing and maybe how far we are away from, you know, a place where we could take a test at the airport and board a plane or one in the lobby and then go up to work or school even? And um, maybe just kind of piggybacking off of that, where do these new antigen tests fit into that whole picture? Great. Uh, so next on question, Rachel, and I think, um, you know, that's the, the, the goal is still the same. It's still to get rapid testing results back. And so as part of our um, uh, uh, metrics for suppression, one of the uh, key performance indicators um, that we're advocating for is to measure the, uh, the average time it takes uh, to get a test result back. Because if we're not measuring it, uh, and it needs to be systematically measured, you know, on every single state dashboard, that needs to be front and center. You know, for the CDC uh, um, dashboard and metrics, that needs to be front and center as well. Um, because the whole goal is to use testing to, uh, one, not just get control of the infection, and two, provide better data to inform the non-pharmacologic interventions, but three is also to um, 
will rebreed confidence um, in, in being able to uh, get on that plane or go back to school in the uh, states and counties where the pandemic is um, in, in, the, in the green or, or under control with a low prevalence. So I think that's still incredibly uh, important. Um, um, I don't know why the conversations moved away from that. Um, and it's, it's frustrating that that's happened. Uh, but I think that's why we need to reinvigorate the focus on the processes of testing. Um, and um, again, I think we're repeating the, a lot of the recommendations from, from March and April, but I think it's important to, um, you know, what's challenging is I think in a lot of states that have figured it out in Massachusetts and New York, for example, you know, there's a notion that, you know, it's, it's settled. Um, but again, this goes back to the earlier comments I made in the opening is that, you know, that collective um, uh, energy around, you, you know, uh, around the pandemic that, 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 that there was in, in New York, we just need to apply that to Phoenix, to Houston, to Miami, and, and help, you know, and help these other states, uh, you know, meet the pandemic now. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I think the, the rapid test, I think, is incredibly important for, um, you know, getting people back to work and back to school. So I think um, uh, getting those processes right is incredibly important. Um, there are a lot of um, uh, specific manufacturers that make the rapid uh, point of care testing, uh, mostly for diagnostic purposes. You know, Cepheid, um, Abbott all make point of care tests. Um, but the idea is how do we take that medical framework and turn that into a, a rapid point of care public health surveillance test. Um, and we can't just rely on the uh, already overburdened medical infrastructure to do that. That's why we have to divorce the testing um, from insurance um, and, uh, and, and, and from the medical system and, and really move it to one of, uh, in the public health uh, community in the field. Antigen tests, I think, can play um, uh, an important role. I just haven't seen them uh, widespread yet or mature enough. Um, I know um, uh, Dr. Burks um, on the White House Task Force has uh, been a big proponent of antigen tests. Um, and, you know, antigen tests have been used in, in other um, uh, diseases like hepatitis um, and not the same sort of medical situation, uh, but there's definitely a, a role to play. Um, so I think this is really the next few days or weeks is a call to action as our cases are still, you know, growing out of control and in and, and more and more states is, you know, it seems, it seems like we've sort of moved on. Um, and I think it's important that we, we don't move on and we, we, we sort of double down on a lot of these, the research efforts and the scaling efforts that had started in March and April, uh, but seemed to have fizzled um, as, as some states have done better and some states have not. Now is to take the, um, the, the learnings from the states that have done well and that energy and, and apply it to the states that need to help now. And what, what do you think is, is needed to get it to that point, to take it from that sort of medical framework that you discussed, you know, these, these point of care tests are available, you know, in the hospital for a quick diagnosis, but I mean, is it, is it more public private partnerships is, I mean, is it more money? What, what needs to happen to, to make these more commercially available? Yeah. So what, um, you know, we've been hearing for, uh, some of our, um, you know, collaborator collaborators on the task force is that for a lot of the, you know, um, biomedical startups, you know, there's a, a challenge um, because there's uh, inconsistent messaging about the demand for tests. So it's hard for a, um, a diagnostic or lab testing company to repurpose their um, 
their, their supply lines for COVID testing if we're hearing inconsistent messaging about how important testing is and what the need for testing is from different governors and different mayors. Um, that's why the, the coordinated strategy both federally is important, but really on a state and local level, um, because you, they need to know that there's going to be a demand there. On the policy side, I think that points to a couple of different solutions. You know, there was a ton of energy around using the DPA, the Defense Production Act, to secure um, demand um, as well as supplies uh, for production of PPEs. You know, in some ways, we've sort of moved beyond that conversation, but I think this is a time to revisit that for testing purposes. Um, um, so guaranteeing that demand. Another policy proposal that we've been working on with a, a, a group of collaborators is the idea of, um, you know, prepaying for tests or a voucher program to make sure that, um, you know, we're separating the need for public health testing from the, you know, the medical infrastructure of having to have a, a doctor or physician order the tests for a clinical indication that has to then be approved and reimbursed by uh, insurance on the back end and performed by, you know, CLIA certified diagnostic laboratories. These tests are not being done for diagnoses or for public health screening and for contact tracing. Mm -hmm. I think that's where a program like a voucher program could be very powerful to uh, direct funds to essentially prepay for tests. Um, and, um, and then that way, you know, testing sites can, can stand up and, and, and know that there's, you know, uh, funding available for these tests uh, out there that are effectively sort of prepaid. Thank you so much. Next question. Yes, Dr. Sai, thank you. I, I have two questions as well, kind of piggybacking off of what you were just talking about. Um, when it comes to rapid testing or testing in general, can you talk about the, the false positive rates and the reliability of these tests? Is there concern that that's having a, any kind of significant impact on your models? Um, there is um, uh, varying degrees of uh, false uh, positive um, and, and, and false negative rates for all the different tests. Um, some of them are, um, uh, especially for the point of care tests, um, you know, the Abbott one comes to mind. It's, it's not just intrinsic to the, um, the, the test technology itself, but in, in some ways uh, to how the tests are being processed and, and the reagents and, and, and cross-contamination for some of the point of care uh, type of, uh, of, of testing. Um, so that is a, a potential um, uh, concern. The, um, the consequences, though, I think have to be sort of weighed with the trade-off of the false positive is. Um, you know, for, for COVID, it, it doesn't mean that you're being subjected to a, um, a, a different uh, suite of, you know, pharmacologic interventions. You know, so you're, you know, you're taking medications or undergoing procedures or tests that then have their own potential side effects. So you may be, you know, adding um, complications or risk unnecessarily. The main um, intervention from a positive test for individuals um, that are either asymptomatic or presymptomatic is to, to, to stay home or, or be more vigilant really around wearing masks and, and you know, physical distancing. Um, so, you know, for all of the false positive rates for the tests, it matters what the consequence of that false positive is. Um, so I think um, that's something that's important uh, uh, to consider. Um, they haven't factored entirely into the models because it's, um, you know, unclear the exact type of test and not broken down um, in a lot of the projection models. Um, the underlying rather case data is not often broken down by the specific tests. So it's um, uh, difficult to extrapolate the false positive rates since, you know, we don't have that data for the aggregate numbers for positive cases on the county or state level. Um, 
uh, but that, that is an important point. And my other question is, as you're breaking things down by state, we're hearing here in California of issues with people being able to get tests. Can you talk about where the, where the state stands and what kind of impact that has on the data in terms of being able to get an accurate idea of what's playing out? Yeah, definitely. And I think the challenge is that um, just as the supply chain bottlenecks are very local, the supply and demand mismatch is also very local. You have counties where there's a very low burden of COVID cases, but there's a um, excess of tests that are uh, available. Um, and you have counties where it's the opposite, where there's a, you know, a skyrocketing cases and not enough tests. Um, so, you know, you know, speaking of these uh, second order metrics that we all need to be uh, measuring now, um, one thing we were discussing this morning actually on one of our conference calls is, um, in, you know, in manufacturing, we, we have, um, uh, uh, you, know, you know, occupancy rates or, or utilization rates for a machine or a, for a production line is that for a lot of the uh, uh, lab sites, uh, whether they're public health or commercial, um, is to be able to at least publicly measure what their utilization rate is. Because if we know there are areas where there's a, a, a mismatch of, um, of availability to demand, that may prompt uh, you know, public health officials on the local county level or state level to, to help redistribute um, or at least uh, uh, reallocate you know, their, where their mobile testing sites need to be based off of uh, where the supply and demand is. And I think that's where uh, mapping the risk levels uh, down to the county level can be incredibly helpful to guide some of these uh, local decisions about um, how to um, allocate um, what is unfortunately now becoming a scarcer resource, which is the, the availability of testing. Are you able to say with California specifically if they're like basically how they rank compared to other states in terms of the difficulty of getting testing right now? Are they on the more challenged end or somewhere in the middle? So um, looking at the test positive rate in California, um, one thing that's really stood out is that it's been essentially stuck at 6% test positive rate for the last uh, 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 several months actually. Um, so what has happened in California is as the cases have increased, the testing has increased in proportion, um, but it hasn't increased to a level where testing has outpaced the growth of cases and the ability to contact trace has, out, you know, has actually gone ahead of the infection and uh, gotten control of it. Um, so, uh, you know, you know, California is testing, you know, in an absolute sense, uh, a very high number. But relative to its population and its growing pandemic, um, you know, it you know it's still short of its targets for uh, for suppressing uh, COVID nineteen, um, and that's why California appropriately has, uh, you know, a week ago instituted um, restaurant bans in, in you know uh, some of these southern counties because you you know if you can't catch up on the testing side, then you have to um, layer on the risk reduction of COVID nineteen by uh, adding on. Uh, social distancing measures and, and possibly even you know localized shutdowns. So I, I think California is doing well, um, but it can do better. Um, and the key thing is really getting the tests out to the communities where they're needed the most. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Next question. Hey, yeah, no, thanks very much for this. Uh, two quick questions. First on uh, everyone's totally favorite drug, What's your take on that uh, Detroit survey on hydroxychloroquine? And uh, my other question is about uh, reopening schools. Um, 
there's a lot of reference to data that kids are not much of a conduit for spreading the virus. And I just wanted to get your take on how robust you see that data being. Um, I actually haven't seen the uh, the survey yet um, on hydroxychloroquine, so it sounds like I'll be look I'll be reading about it in, in Politifact and uh, uh, maybe later today or tomorrow. Uh, so I'll keep an eye out, eye out for that. So thanks for uh, for pointing that out. Um, on the second part um, is the data on how uh, transmission of COVID is on uh, among children. It's still very much unclear. Um, We've uh, been taking a deeper dive into the CDC data that's been reported from both commercial and public health labs um, in terms of the age breakdowns. And the concern isn't that just there's a, a rising number of test positives um, or positivity rate from you know the, the under 65. There's a lot of focus on the 20 to 40 year old, 20 to 40 year old demographic um, from you know, folks being out at bars and restaurants and, and, and driving a lot of transmission. Um, but even in the younger groups of five to 17, we're starting to see increased uh, test positive rates as well. Um, so I think, um, again, I, I don't know the answer to that yet. Um, I don't think the, we have clear enough evidence on the, uh, on the transmission rates, but that's why contact tracing is so important because um, again, I think there's a narrative that contact tracing may be futile as the pandemic is, is getting out of hand but in terms of gathering the data, the, the way we know where the high risk populations are or which industries are, are, are high risk, you know, or you know, which meatpacking plants are, are, are at risk is because of contact tracing. I think that's why it's incredibly important, especially as we reopen um, different industries and uh, reopen schools is we need to be able to track that information because if we're seeing that transmission is happening in schools and then happen and, and going on to families and then back into the community, um, you know, that's, um, you know, we will be, would be important to know. I don't think we know that yet, um, but that um, really means why, again, the, the, the testing is a means to an end, but it's, 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 it's the information that we need to be able to, you know, come up with more informed policies. So I, I think there's a lot of um, interest in that. Um, so definitely everybody's is, is going to be keeping an eye on, on the rates of uh, transmission among, um, you know, uh, school age children. Great. Thank you very much. Next question. Um, uh, thanks for, for taking the question. So yeah, we are uh, in one of the hotspots uh, you mentioned here in Miami. Um, and we, you know, we have a county government here that's shown a willingness to act ahead of the state government. I kind of heard you hinting at this earlier that you thought it might be the time to reconsider a, a lockdown. Well, here in Miami-Dade, you know, a lot of things are restricted, but we're nowhere near kind of like the safer at home orders that we were. Um, you know, there's still outdoor dining, for instance. Um, uh, I believe gyms are, are allowed to stay open right now. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on that, given the, the level of infection we're seeing and kind of the, the testing capacity here um, being strained uh, and also a lack of contact tracing? Um, do you feel like Miami is an example of a metro that should, should be locked down again? Yeah, that's a great question. And that was the reason for why for our dashboard for the um, key metrics for suppression that we had color coded a risk level, the green, yellow, orange, red. And for the red counties, um, those with uh, uh, greater than 25 per 100,000 cases of which I think Miami-Dade is one of the red counties, um, is to not link that to a set of actions. And in the red counties, when the cases are growing beyond the capacity to test, uh, you have to uh, institute um, not just social distancing, if that's not working, um, um, and you know, consider shutting down again. 
you know, what, what strikes me is, you know, Florida was slow to shut down, but did shut down. Um, but if you think about it, you know, Miami had shut down because of rising cases in New York. Now that there's rising cases in Miami, it just doesn't make sense of why you wouldn't shut down when the cases are now in your own backyard. So I, I think, you know, there's, um, you know, understandable fatigue around, um, you know, the, the shut, shut you know, prior shutdown and social distancing. Um, but now, you know, you know, the analogy I had used earlier was, you know, the hurricane is here, you know, before you get boarded up the windows because, you know, you were in the path of the hurricane. Luckily, the hurricane had, you know, diverged. You know, for this storm, you know, you're in the midst of the hurricane and, you know, you're watching the hurricane, you know, flood homes on, on TV. But if you look outside the window, it's, you know, you're that home. Um, so I think um, this is the opportunity where, you know, for decisive action and half measures didn't work. Half measures aren't going to work. Um, and, um, and it doesn't mean a, a permanent shutdown. Um, it means just buying time. You know, we, everybody understood the need to flatten the curve. The whole point of the flattening curve was to buy time. And a lot of counties were back in that same situation again, arguably in a more dire situation. If you look at the, you know, the growth curve of uh, cases in the United States, this, this current wave and this current peak is higher than the, the peak that we saw you know, in, in April. Um, so I, I think that's something that um, local leaders may need to consider. Just to follow up on that, not only is there the, you know, the case number is higher than it was in April, but we're actually able to, to um, track real-time hospitalizations and we can see that we're double the rates of admission and double the peak level we're at at rate, uh, April, so we can feel pretty confident that the rate, the actual rate of infection is much higher than it was in April. But getting back to, to your, your comments, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of pushback from people in Miami who don't even want to wear a mask and they're claiming that masks make them unhealthy. And I mean, are, are you concerned that if the, even if the county um, mayor was to, to issue another lockdown order or another shelter at home uh, order, um, are you concerned that people wouldn't necessarily follow it or that there would be pushback um, in, in response? You know, call me an optimist or, or maybe naive, but I think people do understand. Um, and there's, you know, you know, again, I mentioned earlier in the call, um, there was a um, data I looked at from Tampa Bay Times from some of the reporters there were um, looking at the mobility data. People actually stayed at home two weeks ahead of the shutdown orders because you know people understand how serious the uh, the pandemic is. So I think that's why it's important to convey the um, the gravity of the pandemic in very clear terms. And that's that's where the dashboard that shows the color coded threat level uh, makes that very clear. Um, and then I think people will understand. Um, you know. You know People in Miami have friends, family members who are in hospitals. Um, and what, what really concerns me about the rising hospitalization rates that we're seeing um, now is that that's ref reflecting transmissions um, from about two weeks ago. The rising cases that we're seeing now, the 60,000 new cases in the country, that means that in one to two weeks, you know, we'll, those will, some of those will turn into hospitalizations as well. So this isn't going to blow over. You know, this is, um, you know, you know, we're, we're back to where we were um, in, in, in March and April. Um, so um, I think if that's conveyed in that way, um, you know, people will, will understand. Um, but I think it's also important sort of, you know, you, you know, the, the challenges I think, you know, in some states people have moved on, like their tensions moved on to, 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 some, to something else. But I think in, in Miami, it's, it's a very clear and present danger to lives and livelihoods if, um, if a shutdown doesn't happen. 
Thank you. Uh, next question. Um, he would like to ask about testing, whether all states at this point should be striving to test all residents who want a test, whether they are symptomatic or not, whether they think they have been exposed or not, just anyone who wants a test. Um, I think that's the goal. Um, the problem is um, in, in a lot of local areas, now you have this uh, supply and demand mismatch and you have local uh, bottlenecks of the availability of tests. But the goal is to get to a point where you know, everybody who wants to get tested can get tested and, and should be tested. Um, other countries have been able to do this. Um, and uh, we just seem to have the resolve um, um, to do that. But that means, you know, measuring, uh, you know, these key performance indicators of the testing process so we can figure out in state by state or, or county by county where the local bottlenecks are. Is it still swabs in some places? Is it the reagents in places? Is it the um, availability of testing sites? Um, in, 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 uh, in different places. So I think, you know, we need to sort of shine a light in, into the process and we do that by, by measuring how, the, how well the process is working. But, but absolutely, the, the goal is to get to a point where we can, you know, test everybody. Um, it's just that we're not there yet. Um, but, you know, again, I'm hopeful, right? We, 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 we've moved from 25,000 tests a day to now 650,000 tests a day. So it, it, it just shows that with concerted effort, you know, it can be done. Um, so I think uh, that's where, um, you know, refocusing the conversation on, on, on that part is, is incredibly important. Great, thank you. Um, next question. Hello, how are you doing? Can, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So uh, you kind of answered some of my questions along the way here, uh, but I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, we, we're one of the three sites uh, to have this federal major testing site um, with a goal of 5,000 tests a day. And you know, we're, we're, as we're looking at the numbers, it looks like we're passing the per capita benchmarks for our area that like Harvard has recommended and things, uh, but the positivity rate keeps going up um, even with the increased testing. And so I guess my question is sort of like, do you just keep testing more and more and more till eventually you hit a bottom? Is there a bottom? that you're gonna hit where the positivity will start trending back down. And uh, in, in what, you know, what is that number? I mean, how, how much testing we're we really talking about? Right. Um, the short answer is yes, we just need to keep testing more. Um, but sort of to go on, on a bit of a tangent, you know, in the, in the ideal situation, we would know everybody who is infected and we would test those people. So we have a 100% positivity rate, but we, we also 100% capture rate or ascertainment of, of all the cases. That's just not realistic. Um, so we have to rely on the test positive rate to uh, reflect how wide a net uh, that you're casting. And you know, the analogy I, I use is I, I fly fish. So I, I like to use these fly fishing or these fishing analogies, but um, you know, you can go fishing with, um, with, with, with a hook and bait and you can catch that, you know, that one fish, it's 100%, but you don't know what the other uh, fish there are uh, out there. So in, it's important to kind of, you know, you know, cast a wide net to get a sense of, of how widespread the pandemic is, especially what we know about the risk of transmission from asymptomatic and, and presymptomatic individuals um, uh, uh, transmitting COVID. The, um, the, but again, the, my worry is that um, people are talking about all these interventions in isolation and that it's not just about testing alone is not going to 
um, uh, control the epidemic because testing just provides information. You know, the testing is not therapeutic. The testing is therapeutic if people actually react to the testing results. So people who are positive then actually stay home and self-quarantine for 14 days. Uh, my fear and worry is that people are not doing that. Um, you know, people used to uh, stay home while they're waiting for their test results to come back. You know, in some ways you were, um, you know, uh, guilty until proven innocent. Now it's the opposite. People uh, are going back, you know, um, and getting tested, but, you know, still going about their daily lives while the tests are coming back. So, um, you know, the way I, I was phrasing it is that, you know, innocent until proven guilty works really well for criminal justice, but for pandemics, it doesn't work so well. Um, so we do need uh, increased testing, um, but um, to drive the test positive rate down, the goal of the positive rate is not the goal in itself. The goal is to control a pandemic. The goal ultimately is a 0% positive rate. So I think for Louisiana and, and, and a lot of other states, um, it's about testing broadly, but then coupling that with, you know, supported isolation, reinforcing universal masking and physical distancing, all these things um, uh, that are needed uh, to work together to bring the uh, to bring the uh, pandemic uh, under control. Once it's under control, then you can use testing and contact tracing to rapidly diagnose individual cases and, and quarantine those individuals uh, in a supported way so they don't become a case that then turns into a, a cluster. Just to jump, uh, follow up, uh, can you speak a little bit more about the accuracy of PCR testing currently? I know someone else had asked this question. What What is, I know there's different tests, but what is the average accuracy percentage on the test right now because uh, there's all sorts of things all over the place just tell me what you understand it to be yeah it, it um it really does vary um and it, it's not just the test itself what's also challenging is it depends on where in the course of the um uh disease uh you're being tested um uh the you know the, uh, there's this great um uh scatter plot was a preprint paper. Um, I actually don't know if it's actually been published yet. Um, it, it's, it looks like a random scatter plot of, of when uh, individuals are, uh, are most infectious, meaning where the viral shedding is most significant. It's likely highest in the uh, pre-symptomatic uh, period of a, a, a few days, one to two days before symptoms uh, develop, uh, but it can vary quite a bit. So I think that's, that's the challenge. Um, the overall consensus um, on the clinical side is that the, the, the PCR tests are very highly reliable. Um, we're using it to screen individuals um, in the hospital. You know, I, I'm a surgeon. Every single one of my patients I get operated on uh, undergo a, uh, a PCR test um, uh, to uh, rule out COVID um, you know, prior to any uh, elective uh, operations. Um, so uh, generally speaking, the uh, the tests are are accurate and uh, and reliable uh, on average. Can you put can you put a number on it? Uh, um, I, I, not off the top of my head. Um, I, it really again depends on on, on, the, on the specific assays, how they're being done. Um, so I, I I can look into that and I can get back to you with some information. Okay, fair enough. Thank you. I'll put you on that. Uh, are you all set then? Yeah, the other questions kind of got dealt with. Uh, okay. Great. Uh, next question. Hi, uh, Dr. Tsai. Thank you for, for taking the question. I, I just wanted to uh, ask you for a specific question. We're seeing more people lining up for tests, and they're also waiting longer for results. And last week, the state began adding antigen test results 
uh, and reporting them together with their PCR test results. And I understand that antigen tests may provide faster results, but um, they also have some, uh, I've read that they have some issues with uh, perhaps false negatives. And I'm wondering in, in your estimation, should they be lumped together with PCR test results? And what are the pros and cons of antigen tests? Yeah, um, I don't know the specific antigen test that's being used um, in Florida. So I don't know the exact um, you know, specificity or sensitivity rates. Um, or you know the false positive or false negative rates uh, for the antigen specific antigen test that's being used um, in Florida. The best way to display the information, um, you know, think about how the hospitalization data are being displayed in uh, uh, different state dashboards and by the CDC. You have overall hospitalizations and then a proportion of hospitalizations um, that are attributed to COVID, and you have overall ICU. Um, uh, occupancy rate and the proportion that's uh, you know due to uh, COVID-19. So I think our testing needs to be displayed in the same way for active disease. So what the overall test positive rate is, and then broken down by uh, um, a viral PCR tests, and then broken down by uh, antigen tests. Um, you know, I, I, there's there's so many different tests out there. Um, I think it's important to just have both that granularity of information, but also being an aggregate way so we can. Um, uh, look at them sort of uh, on average. So I think you know, you know, breaking that down is uh, is you know incredibly you know helpful. You know, we we, if we we can do it for like basketball games, right? Like we can show like score, you know, overall score. What are two pointers, three pointers? You know, I, we we should be we should be able to do this for for the pandemic. And, and just as a quick follow up, it, it, I mean, people are waiting much longer. It seems we're getting more comments from readers saying that they're waiting a week or more for the results, which I think would reduce the effectiveness of, of uh, uh, perhaps uh, the, the testing itself. Um, I, I think a lot of states uh, may be running into this issue. What can be done when you know, commercial labs like Quest are saying that they're at capacity and our Bureau of Public Health labs really don't have a lot of capacity? Um, yeah, I think what incredibly important model um, is what's happened in Boston is the Broad Institute uh, which is a, a research uh, laboratory that's uh, collaboration between Harvard and MIT has really stepped up to, um, uh, you know, produce uh, or fill the void in being able to produce tests. I think um, Eric Lander, who directs the Broad, uh, um, you know, says they can do up to 100,000 tests a day if 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 if, uh, if needed. Um, and uh, but, you know, the Broad isn't the only research lab in in the country. So I think this is where uh, that model of um, uh, public-private, or in this case, sort of academic uh, partnership um, to fill a, uh, a public health need can be incredibly powerful. Um, you know, I, as an employee at Harvard, I need to be tested every week um, um, uh, to be on campus. Um, and those tests are being done uh, by the Broad Institute. Um, and the results are back uh, within one to two days. Um, so again, I think that's a really uh, powerful model that can be replicated by universities um, across uh, uh, different states uh, to really uh, fill in uh, the gap by what the commercial labs are, are able to do. Um, and so I think uh, this is, and then the other part is uh, what I mentioned earlier where, um, you know, either a voucher program or prepaying or, or activation of the Defense Production Act, but guaranteeing a demand of tests, um, that creates market confidence for a lot of the, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, Biolog uh, you know, startup companies and biotech companies to repurpose their uh, manufacturing lines uh, for testing. But I think it's such mixed signals that it's been challenging for uh, some of the um, 
states to be able to, uh, for, for the companies to be able to do so. Again, another example, um, again, I keep coming in Massachusetts, not, you know, one, it's doing, it's done really well, but also, you know, from a policymaking standpoint, but also because I live here, um, you know, they just put out a new RFP uh, um, targeted at, um, you know, you know, institutes like the Broad or startup companies like Inco Bioworks to be able to, um, uh, repurpose uh, either research or you know manufacturing uh, uh, production lines towards uh, you know diagnostic uh, towards uh, testing. Next question. Hi, how are you? Thanks for taking my question. Uh, we obviously are in a hot spot down here in South Carolina. I'm in Charleston County. I just got off the phone. Um, this morning on a task force meeting with the school system, they are looking at um, delaying the start of school possibly as one consideration, um, backing it up a little bit. However, uh, do we have enough time to pull out of this, uh, this peak right now? Is there a way for us to get the numbers down to a place where it would be safe for our kids to go back as soon as the end of August, uh, which is what they're, what, which is what they're considering right now. It's still slated for August 18th. And that would be possibly with a in-person and online model, particularly. Is there a way to get kids back into school safely that soon when you're already in the red zone? Yeah, thanks for that question. I, um, you know, I'm deeply worried by the, uh, the timeline that are, that's available. And with the rising cases in South Carolina, um, you know, that's going to mean, uh, you know, a rising number of hospitalizations and unfortunately fatalities in, in a couple of weeks. Um, so I think that's where being proactive on the part of the state leaders and, and, and county leaders is incredibly important because if they're reacting to the case data, that's, uh, you know, a day late and dollar short. So it's really important to, um, uh, you know, you know, take proactive action um, and, and, and sort of it's like any, any public health measure, in some ways we all wanna be wrong. I wanna, you know, I want our testing targets to be totally off because the states have, the states have done better um, and had, don't need to do as many tests because they've controlled the, the pandemics. Um, so I think with a lot of the schools opening in August, um, that, that window of opportunity, I think is still there. It is closing very, very rapidly, um, which is why, in, you, know, um, you know, switching gears from South Carolina, the, the restaurant ban in Arizona that came in yesterday is, you know, an important step, but it's, you know, it's not enough. Um, and uh, if, uh, you know, we need to flatten the curve and really in order to get schools open, it's not just enough to flatten the curve, it's to really bend the curve down until there's safe levels for children to be back in school, for teachers um, and staff uh, to, to be, you know, in the schools teaching. And we all agree that's incredibly important um, but we need to get the, the community level transmission down to a low enough level where that is safe um, uh, for everyone involved. Uh, is, it, is it unrealistic, do you think, to be thinking we can do this in time? We haven't even put those measures into place. Yeah, if, if anything, the pandemic has taught me is uh, I don't have a crystal ball and nobody, none of us have crystal balls, but looking at where the data are now and the trends and the data, um, I think it'd be very challenging um, uh, at, at this point. Uh, but again, you know, the thing about the pandemic is that, you know, you can change the course of the pandemic. Um, 
uh, the problem is it just it doesn't turn on a dime. You know, there's a couple week lag in, in the response to the policies um, in terms of how that translates to the cases and, 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 and hospitalizations. Um, so I think that window is closing um, uh, very rapidly, you know, if, if school is supposed to start on time. Thank you. Uh, and thank you. And the final follow-up question. Thank you for taking this question. I, I was just thinking if your your message was really uh, resounding with me that it may be time to to look at embracing some of the messages that we did months ago, rallying behind the effort to flatten the curve. It feels like things have changed now with so much conflicting information, political division, and a desire to resist wearing masks in the air. Can you talk and? Uh, about and try to deliver a message to people like our viewers as what kind of ways we'll start to see this manifest in their lives and impact them if they're not taking this resurgence seriously? Yeah, thanks for that question, Quinn. I think that's where the local reporting is is incredibly helpful. Um, I think people are fed up about hearing about what's going on in another state, another county, another city. Um, but in a lot of these uh, hotspot counties, um, that's why it's incredibly important to show the data. You know, this is what you know the pandemic looks like in your backyard. Um, you know, this is what it means for you in terms of you know your children's ability to go back to school, your ability to go back to your jobs, you know, um, you know your ability to visit you know your grandparents in, in, in the nursing home. So I think driving home the local uh, effect is incredibly important. Um, to uh, for people to understand um, what it means um, on a local level, because then that hopefully will translate to um, um, an individual level response in terms of masking um, and, and social distancing. Um, but uh, yeah, you, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but um, is, is that? Oh, kind of, uh, where will they start to see this? We'll start to see hospitals overwhelmed and those kinds of things that'll make it be real for them. What are they gonna see? It's, it's already happening, you know, in, um, in hospitals in Houston, um, um, you know, but I think it's a very local context. So I think it's, um, you know, I think that's why it's important to kind of, you know, illustrate these local stories because, um, you know, even if you're, if you're not in Houston, you're in the panhandle in Texas, it may not seem like it's going to affect you. Um, so, yeah, but I mean, again, it's, it's too late to wait for the hospitalizations and the deaths. The whole point is to avert that, um, you know, we all know it's, they're a lag indicator. Um, but, you know, what we're seeing, the rise in hospitalization we're seeing now is about what happened two weeks ago. And hospitals are already getting overburdened, and you know, and some hospitals are are instituting these crisis standards of care, um, and the whole point is to not get to that point. And you're right, and you know, all the solutions that we had come up with in March, it it does boggle my mind a little bit why we aren't talking about that again. You know, creating field hospitals to. Um, to uh, you know, uh, recreate capacity because now the challenge is hospitals can't just easily postpone surgeries. There's a lot of pent up demand for healthcare for non-COVID uh, patients. So the challenge is now meeting the current need for healthcare on top of the rising uh, pandemic. Um, so again, like we know what the game plan is. We just have to execute it. There's not a new game plan. There hasn't been a new, a new tool, a new solution, whether pharmacologic or non-pharmacologic, it's still the same bag of tools that we had back in March. It worked in, you know, it worked um, in, in March, April, and May. We, we flattened the curve and then we actually bent the curve down. Um, the challenge is that, um, you know, for individuals, for local leaders, you can't look to 
um, a, a national message, you, you have to take responsibility for your own individual ju jurisdiction to, to flatten the curve um, and, and bend the curve and suppress it in your own, in your own uh, area. That's great, thank you. All right, Dr. Tsai, I think that's our last question. Um, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to close the call with? Uh, I feel like it's a, a, a sobering <laughs> call. <laughs> feel, uh, it usually is. <laughs> I feel like I need, I need to go decompress a little bit. Um, but you know, I, I think the, the you know the, the the data are really sobering, and I and this is this was our message back in in March, and the reason we've been pushing out these um, uh, testing uh, metrics um, and really advocating for um, the key performance indicators is to really offer solutions and there are solutions um, and it's incredibly important for uh, individuals to understand that public health leaders and policymakers to understand that the solutions are, are there um, the trade-offs are not easy uh, but we all know what the consequences of, of an action looks like because we're seeing it play out uh, in front of our eyes right now um, but this is the moment for action. I think this is a moment for collective action. I think that's what's been missing uh, in the conversation in the last several weeks. It's, you know, states uh, in the north looking at, you know, states in the south saying, well, you know, that's because you opened too soon, you know, but let's go back to where we were in March and, and, and sort of, you know, you know, have that collective energy about, you know, solutions um, um, that, that we did uh, in, in March to flatten the curve and, and people staying at home in, in high-risk areas. Um, so I think if we focus on that, uh, we can hopefully move um, the needle there. Um, but again, thank you for organizing the call. And the, the media has an incredible role to play in getting that message out because, you know, of the lack of sort of federal um, strategy around this. So getting these stories out to the local communities is, is incredibly important, especially as the pandemic looks so different across different counties. This concludes the July 10th press conference.